That was a great chapter to memorize, don't you think? We are now in uh, Revelation 16. For those of you who have, who have not been with us for a while, perhaps, we've been going through the book of Revelation. And I think we've been on it a little over a year now. And uh, Lord willing, we will finish it this month. We now come to the final seven judgments in the book of Revelation. They're called the seven bowls, or in some of your versions, the seven vials. Um, as we said when we, we began the series, it appears from the scripture that the three sets of the seven judgments come with greater rapidity as we get toward the end. So that these seven judgments apparently come within a very short time. We don't know exactly how long, uh, maybe weeks, maybe months. But the whole Great Tribulation is only three and a half years, so if this comes toward the end, it's probably no greater than a few months. So as we read these verses, um, try to keep in mind the tremendous uh, magnitude of the events we're reading about. We read these words, and they often are just words on a page, but this is, uh, these, as Jesus said, this is a time such as the world has never seen or will ever see again. Now, some have noted, uh, and you'll probably notice it as we read through them, that as we go through the seven bowls, uh, there seems to be a parallel between the bowls and the trumpets, which we read about a few months ago. Uh, and I'll mention that as we go through it. That is what is involved in each judgment. Another thing to notice before we get into it is that at this stage of God's judgment, uh, John, in fact, all the other heavenly hosts, are excluded from the presence of God. We saw that, remember, last time in chapter 15, verse 8. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. I think a, a picture of the holiness of God and really the fearfulness is God is now engaged in judging the earth. Now, now though we in a sense, don't see visions of God as we have earlier in the Scripture. We hear Him, but we hear Him twice. Uh, verse 1 and verse 17, there's a loud voice that comes out from the temple. Clearly the voice of God, we'll talk about that. So, even though we still have another five chapters after this, really we're, we're at the last convulsion, if you will, of planet Earth. Because right after these judgments comes the great battle of Armageddon, and then the visible, or actually coincident with that, the visible return of the Lord Jesus. So we're really very near the end as far as the history of planet Earth in this dispensation is concerned. And uh, as I said uh, many times, when you study the Bible, look for repetition, look for phrases that occur more than once. Remember last time we, we keyed on a word that occurred more here is there any place else in the Bible? Anybody remember what it was? Only a, only a month ago. It starts with a W. second word is R. <laughs> yeah, that's right, wrath. Do you remember that now? It, it was, so we talked about the wrath of God. And uh, we see it again in this chapter. It occurs more in these three chapters than any place else in the Bible, that word, by the way. Um, a couple of things. First of all, the idea that they blaspheme God occurs twice. That's, that's significant. We're going to talk about that. 
the dwellers of the earth blaspheme God twice in this chapter. In fact, uh, at the two uh, middle judgments. And the phrase that they uh, did not repent occurs twice. Okay, so we'll go with it uh, verse by verse. Verse 1. John writing, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So God, now in the, pictured in the temple, of course he fills heaven and earth, but particularly he's pictured, his presence is particularly, particularly now in the temple. A voice comes out of the temple, clearly the voice of God, and it says it's a loud voice. And as I said, we see that twice here. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 42. This is significant. You'll be familiar with this chapter because of something that's quoted in the New Testament. Let's read the first uh, three verses together. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, this is Isaiah 42, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Interesting that this chapter begins by talking about the Lord's uh, servant, of course, talking about the Lord Jesus, and we know this is quoted later in describing his ministry. And one of the significant things about the ministry of the Lord was that he didn't shout, it says that. He says he will not cry out nor raise his voice. Isn't that interesting? And uh, it goes on to talk about his gentleness in dealing with people. In fact, uh, when you look back at the Gospels, that was fulfilled. During his, his ministry, we can't say he never shouted. Uh, he's actually recorded the Lord Jesus uh, called out with a loud voice a couple of times in the Scripture. Once during his ministry. The other times, of course, were on the cross. Do you know when that time was and he cried out with a loud voice? By any chance? Yes, Don, Don got it, that's right, yeah. And that, uh, we can excuse him for that, I mean that reverently, at, at the raising of Lazarus. Because he's commanding a dead man to come forth. Lazarus, come forth! It says he cried out with a loud voice. He commanded him in a loud voice. No other time does it ever say... And, of course, that's a common phrase in Scripture. Lots of people in the, in the Gospels were crying out with loud voices, but Jesus didn't. And that's significant. You see, it's a picture of his gentle ministry. And, of course, the other times, this was and certainly to be expected, was on the cross. He cried out several times with a loud voice, I thirst, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then finally, when he yielded up his spirit, it says he cried out with a loud voice. And, and uh, that's a sermon in itself, just the Lord Jesus crying out that way uh, in the travail of his soul. And finally, that voice of triumph at the end, it is finished. So and it's, in, it's in this chapter that God then picks up on that theme of crying out with a loud voice. And he says now in verse 13, we're still in Isaiah 42. He's talking about the time 
when he will judge the earth. And he will uh, also establish the Messiah on his throne, remembering the nation of Israel and his promises to that nation. It says this, The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands and I will dry up the pools. That fits in significantly with Revelation because until this time, it, this uh, picture has not been used of God crying out. And here he is now in his temple, in the temple of God in heaven, crying out twice. Once at the beginning of the judgments of the bowls and the second time at the end. And really, it's a chilling picture here, if you understood what he was saying here in Isaiah. It says that he will uh, stir, him, stir up a zeal like a man of war. He will cry out, shout aloud. Um, now, I, I don't know. I haven't been with men of war before they go out to battle. I've seen football players, you know, and they work themselves up. You ever seen, seen them do that? They get, they, I, the word is they get pumped. And they, and, they, and they raise their voices. The thing is, they're trying to get the adrenaline flowing. You see, there actually is a physical connection there. And so I suppose that's, that's what uh, some men of war have done at some time. Uh, they, they yell, they shout, they get excited. You see, they're getting ready for action. And that's the picture here that God is, the parallel that God is drawing with himself. Now, of course, God doesn't need to get his adrenaline flowing. But he's using that as a picture to show that it's not just a complacent uh, God now, you know, turning and, and, and acting in judgment. He has worked up. You see, all this time he says, uh, I have held my peace a long time. We're seeing it right now. As we live right now, we are seeing the patience and the long-suffering of God. He's restraining himself. But as each day, think about it, six billion people contributing to that aggravating pile of sin that God hates so much, pretty soon there's going to come a time when it ends and his righteousness can take no more. And that's when it'll happen. And that's the picture here. I've restrained myself long enough, he says, I will cry out like a woman in labor. Okay, back to Revelation. Let me say one other thing, too, about God acting in judgment. It says in Second Peter about people of the earth and, and how they, they mock God. You know, they say, where is the promise of his coming? You know, for since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning. And, of course, uh, that's what he talks about there in Isaiah. He says, I've restrained myself long enough. It's, it's he's restraining himself. But in the meantime, while God is silent, people get away with this, this mockery. Let me say, God is not in a hurry. Okay? And there's something about God that we don't understand as, as humans. Um... When, for example, when a general of an army uh, is going to move against his adversary, he has to wait for all the conditions to be just right. 
It has to be the right time. Uh, he has to have the right equipment, the right people. It has to be in the right place. And when the opportunity comes, he better seize it because it may pass away. This is well known. And we're like that. You know, if, if somehow we have the advantage on someone, we better act before it goes away. God's not like that, you see. God doesn't have to wait until he has the advantage. You understand? Nobody's going to stop God from doing what he's going to do. He doesn't have to worry about opposition. He doesn't have to worry about someone restraining his hand. You know, or the right moment coming, because if he doesn't act now, he can't ever act again. God's not like that. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And so that's why God can, as we see right now, restrain himself, and he does, in long-suffering and patience. But when it comes time, and he knows when that is, in the fullness of the time, there's no one that can stop him. And so he can act whenever he wants. Okay, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so he begins the judge, the last series of judgments here with this command from within the temple. The first one is in verse 2, So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. This is the first judgment directed specifically at those, by the way, who worship the Antichrist and his image. And it's interesting, let's look back, you know, and think we talked about the mark, we talked about uh, the various possibilities from our point of view of what, what it could be, you remember, the... Uh, uh, Implant, if you will, that, that can be uh, located by satellite and, and uh, the uh, universal ID, you know, permitting exchange of currency and so on. And when the people on, at this time who, who received the mark, when they first got it, I'm sure they were assured peace and safety. They were guaranteed that they could, because of that, uh, exchange, buy and sell. In fact, that was the criterion. If you were going to buy and sell, you'd have the mark. There were promises. There was, and there was a sense of security, I believe, that came with this. And now they're finding out that it was a lie. Isn't that interesting? And now this is, has yet to happen, and yet there is a similarity today, because the devil offers to people today the exact same lie. He says, look, here's the world. Here's my world system. Enjoy yourself. You can have peace. You can have safety. You can have fulfillment. You can have happiness right here without God. You don't need God. That's a lie. And you, you may go through your whole life and believe that lie, but whether it's in this life or later, guaranteed, you're going to find out that you've been deceived, that it was all a lie. And in fact, that the only real peace and safety and fulfillment can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just in this life, but in the life to come, forever and ever. Now, that's the truth. And let me encourage you, if you haven't come to that realization yet, then today's the day. Amen. Trust Jesus Christ, and you'll find real peace and safety. Well, these unfortunate ones begin to find out that the mark was not such a great idea after all. 
And uh, God, we don't know exactly what this uh, sore is, but it's, it must be incredibly painful. Uh, the interesting thing is that it's only on those who have the mark. Those who have not worshipped the beast do not receive it. And he's going to, uh, in these last seven judgments, he's going to focus once again on the beast and his followers. Okay, verse 3, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now, I mentioned that there's a parallel between the seven bowls and the seven trumpets, and if you uh, remember, or you can look back, do it quietly, you'll see that the second tr- uh, trumpet also is a very similar judgment on the sea. There, a third of the life in the sea died. Here, everything living in the sea dies. So you can see we're very near the end, you see. God, in a sense, is wrapping up his judgment of planet Earth. You see, that's God's prerogative. He created the Earth and all the things in it. And it's been ruined by sin. And, and God is going to have a fresh start not far from these events. And so, in a sense, he's wrapping up the history of the old sinful planet. And here, uh, he judges the seas. Now, I don't know if many of you know, but there's some real irony here in turning the sea to blood. I don't know if it's touted much anymore, but for a long, long time, one of the um, silly, but what they believed to be strong arguments for, for evolution was... Uh, there are some similarities between seawater and our blood. Did you know that? They're, they're very remote. There are similar minerals and that sort of thing. And uh, particularly in uh, the 50s and the 60s, scientists used to talk about, you know, they, they'd picture a hydra, that's a little sea creature, and they would show the seawater going through the hydra, or maybe some of the bivalves, you know, and the other mollusks, and how they circulate seawater through themselves to stay alive. Well, you know where we're going with this, Right? Because pretty soon you transition to a higher form and suddenly you've got a man standing there but instead of seawater, it's blood. Isn't that good? It's so silly. But uh, this was a a very, what they believed, a a convincing argument. Of course, it's it's not used much anymore for uh, evolution. And I think it's ironic that God literally does turn the seawater to blood. And you remember what uh, our primary rules were for interpreting the Word of God, right? When we come to the book of Revelation. If it says like or as, well, okay, be careful. You know, it's a picture. But he doesn't say it was like. It says became blood. Okay? Period. So don't try to explain it or, you know, postulate, well, what is it really? It's blood. That's what God says it is. Well, he's not done with the water. In verse 4, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. So now, now he hits the fresh water. And you can see we're really getting to the end now because the world's fresh water supply is going to be gone at this point. He poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Now, um, I, was at, I was preaching at Fairhaven last week and uh, I was talking about angels and, and mentioned that uh, in Scripture there are as, as you know, various categories of angels. God uses words like principalities and powers. There's a hierarchy. There are ranks. And as we see the angels des- described in, in uh, the Scripture, they have different responsibilities. So don't get this kind of stereotype picture, you know, that they're all, they all look the same. They have blonde hair and big wings that start here and go down to the floor with feathers on them and a halo here. 
or fat little babies, you know, with stubby little wings flying around. Angels are, are tremendously powerful and great beings. They're spirit beings like you are, by the way. Do you know that? You know, you're not primarily physical. We need to keep reminding ourselves of that. This is a container, okay? This, this thing's going to rot away, this body I have, yours. What makes you, you inhabits this container, and it's spirit. Okay? That's real. God is spirit. That's wonderful, because that means you can know him. And that's, that's the way angels were created. They are spirit beings. They are great spirit beings. They are powerful spirit beings. Just to give you an idea, one of them slew 85,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. They are powerful beings. And I'm bringing that up because it's significant. One of them apparently is custodian. I don't know how else to put it. His province appears to be the waters of the earth. Verse 5, And I heard the angels of the waters saying, We don't know who he is. He's never been mentioned before. We don't know exactly what his responsibilities are, but he is the angel of the waters. And I love this because this angel's responsibility, whatever it is involving the waters, his province clearly is the waters of the earth. Now think about it. God has just, how should I say it, messed up his province. But he's not offended. Look what he says. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they, talking about the people of the earth, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Isn't that good? This is so typical of the unfallen angels. He doesn't, he doesn't argue with God. He doesn't uh, complain about it. He worships God when he sees God acting in such justice. Let me tell you, there are so many wrongs that are going to be righted when God judges the earth. So many and this is just one of them. God has never forgotten one of them. Not to mention the fact that if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to answer for your sin. Individually, personally. But there are things that have taken place on this earth that he has put up with that he is going to address one by one. For example, this uh, city and system called Babylon the Great. He devotes two whole chapters to that. But here, through the centuries, uh, the world is hated God's people. And they have killed the prophets and martyred many saints. And particularly during the Revelation, of course, we know, during the, during the uh, Tribulation, there's going to be uh, blood flowing as those who love the Lord Jesus are slaughtered. And God has not overlooked that. And it's just, it's so, I don't know how, I don't know how you feel about it, but I say amen to what this angel says. Man, this is right. This is good. You know, God is finally righting that wrong. And what more significant, ironic way than to give them blood to drink? No more, no more water. I mean, <laughs> there's going to be a run on the bottled water, I'll tell you. You know, in the few days after this, and then they're going to be down to Pepsi and uh, High C or something. No more water. Just blood. It's an act of judgment. Man, that's a right. Act of judgment by God. And not only that, we don't know who or what this is. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Apparently another angel, a group of them, chimes in. Okay, the eighth verse. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And now here we get into the response of the people. And men were scorched with great heat, 
And they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. There's so many amazing things here, uh, and we don't exactly what God does to the Son. Um, if you've been here for the series, you know the things we've talked about that are certainly... Let me just say, I think it's great. I like to watch, I like to watch how God acts, don't you? You know, it says in the Old Testament that the people of Israel uh, saw the acts of God, but Moses knew his ways. And I like, to, I like to understand the ways of God. And as we approach the end time here, it's amazing to me to see how God... It's like he's showing the earth, look, I can do it any time. You know the things we've gone through. Twenty years ago, you'd read some of these things we've read about. For example, the, uh, the, the uh, sky being rolled back like a scroll. Man, that fits. Now, within the last ten years, we've discovered, if there were to be a gamma ray burst, remember we talked about that? That's exactly what it would look like as the nitrous oxides sweep across the sky as the ozone layer is uh, blasted. You can just see the darkness rolling across. That's incredible. Isn't that a coincidence that right now God, you know, has just shown this to the scientists. Look, it can happen any time. Now, he doesn't have to do that. He could just start, bang, 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 right now. But you, you go down the list of all these, uh, the, the uh, meteors or asteroids hitting the earth. All of a sudden now, we're well aware of the fact that we're a target and there's nothing we can do about it. Isn't that amazing that it's happening right now? And we could go on and on to the things we've looked at. And it's, it's like God in another act of mercy saying, look, wake up. You know, you guys are totally defenseless. I can act whenever I want. Here's a demonstration. And he demonstrated to us, of course, uh, September 11th. And we saw people acting there. And we saw ourselves responding in exactly the same way it happens in the end times. The fear and the anticipation of what's going to come next. Right out of Luke. I'd say, if, you, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd be scared. It's, it's like God is saying, okay, it's about to come. You know, it's like when they dim the lights in the play just before it starts. That's what we are. And so, uh, we know by now, just uh, from so many things, what this could be. Uh, if indeed the, the, earth, uh, the, the sky rolling back like a scroll, which has already happened at this point in the book of Revelation, there have been tremendous changes in the atmosphere. And certainly, uh, a, a good probability will be that that protective layer that keeps the ultraviolet rays out is going to be gone. And if God just causes a flare-up of UV rays from the sun, I mean, you, th you think sunburn, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, it's, it's going to be horrible. You'll literally get fried if you go outside. We don't know exactly the, uh, what it could, uh, could be, but that certainly is, is a possible explanation. Whatever it is, it was a, a terrible, uh, horrible, painful thing. And here's the, the uh, I don't know, sad and surprising thing. Rather than people finally coming to their senses and saying, look, God is acting here, you know, <laughs> you think you'd learn by now, right? 
We need to turn from our sin and turn to God. What does it say? It says they blasphemed the name of God. That's incredible. You know, they shook their fist at God and cursed Him. And they did not repent and give Him glory. Well, this is significant because we're really coming to the end of the judgment and God is demonstrating here that the earth is ripe for judgment. He's showing that we've come to the point as a human race that we're beyond hope. Even with uh, a judgment like this uh, that hits people personally, rather than waking up and turning from their sin, they curse God. And it's significant then that the same thing happens in response to the next judgment. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Really, if you think about it, God is giving them a preview here. The two elements of this judgment are what? Darkness and what? Pain. Darkness and pain. What does that sound like? That's right. It's like God is giving them a little foretaste of what they're headed for if they don't repent. You remember the rich man in the story of Lazarus, the, the poor man, remember, who sat outside his gates and the dogs licked his sores. He just longing for some crumbs from the rich man's table. And when the rich man finally died and went to hell and longed just for Lazarus to touch his uh, finger in water and touch his tongue, and he couldn't even do that, he said, well, if that can't happen, please send someone back you know, and warn my brothers of this place. And he was told, look, they have Moses and the prophets. This is it here, the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets. That's what they need, the Word of God, not a sign. Signs don't do it, do they? And it's ironic. There, God said, look, if somebody came back from hell and said, look, you don't want to go to the place I've been. Here, it's like God sort of gives them a, a visit, you know, just a preliminary touch of hell. And it, and it has the same null effect. Rather than, than waking up and saying, God, we have sinned and turning from their sin, they blaspheme God. And we really see the hardness of the heart of man here in the last times. Remember the picture we used, the, the God uses here in, in Revelation of a wine press. You know, it's an it's a, uh, eloquent picture of the judgment of God in the heart of man. As he, as he tramples down, you know, in that winepress, Jesus says, Jesus treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And you tread on the grapes. Pretty soon you get to the end, there's hardly any juice left. Until finally, all you... You say, well, we're only on the fifth ball. Well, you'll see, really, the sixth is, is uh, it's a preparation, if you will, for, the act of, uh, for Armageddon. It's really not a judgment in the sense of a catastrophe falling on people. And then the seventh really is the last uh, gasp. Okay, verse uh, 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared 
And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Okay, well, from the fourth and fifth bowls, we saw the hardness of the heart of man. And so God is allowing them now to prepare for the last scene. And it's interesting that he's, he's actually helping them out. He's, ena- he's enabling them because it says it allows the kings from the east to come when he dries up the river Euphrates. Now, we could go back into the prophets and there are kings from the east, there are kings from the north, there are kings from the south. Interestingly, there's, there's no king from the west, but that's because the Mediterranean Sea is there. But they're mentioned throughout the Old Testament and uh, oh, we could go hog wild with them because there are a lot of things uh, and as many kings as there are, there are just as many theories as to who they are. In fact, it's interesting, as you read the commentaries through the years, you get, get an old commentary written around the turn of the century then, um, you know, the king from the north is Turkey or something like that. You read something written in the 50s, of course, it's Russia. And I don't know who it is nowadays, if you read a modern commentary. But um, ideas have come and gone as to who these kings are and uh, the details of the movements. But the bottom line is there's going to be a convergence of world leaders with their armies at the place, you know this by now, Everybody, non-Christians know this, at Megiddo, Armageddon. Armageddon literally means the, uh, the plain or the mountain of uh, Megiddo, which is in northern Israel. We've talked about that before. Now, in enabling, if you will, this uh, convergence of armies, it says, I saw three unclean spirits. Now, notice, here's our word, like frogs. So I know you got this picture of frogs hopping out of their mouths. It, it says like frogs. So they weren't frogs. It's not clear exactly what they were physically, but we know what they were in reality because it goes on to tell us. They were demons. And if you read this and you think about what's going on, it is so pathetic that these demons go out through the earth and you would think that people would have learned by now that they've been deceived, that they've been led astray, that God is acting in judgment. It's time for us to turn to God, but again, they fall for the signs. These guys go out and it says they perform signs. It's not clear what they are, but whatever they are, it's enough to convince the world leaders to come together. And do you know who they end up fighting against? The Lord Jesus. That's incredible. They try to resist God with their armies. Look back at Psalm 2. It's so fitting now to look at that, just the beginning portion of it, because it fits in with this context. And here God just, he points out the, the futility of the leaders, the kings of the earth, trying to fight against him. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That's really a picture of the 
uh, futility of Armageddon. Now, we're not going to go into detail about Armageddon because it really takes place in chapter 19. We'll talk about it then. But here, they're already coming together. And God says it this way. It says that the people plot a vain thing. The, the word vain, it means empty, useless, pointless. And of course, his response, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. That, that's a very unusual phrase. You don't see this very often in the Old Testament. It says God is laughing. The Lord shall hold them in derision. You see, if you could just see the futility of what they're doing from God's point of view, it's laughable, it's comical that they actually think they could combine together to resist God. And I love the way God responds here because it's not like he kind of looks and says, oh, I better do something, you know. I've got to respond to this threat. He doesn't. Look at this. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And this is the statement. Yet I have, past tense, set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Isn't that great? It hasn't happened yet. But he says it in the past tense. You know? He doesn't say, but I am going to get together the host of heaven. I'm going to wipe you guys out. You know, I've got this great plan and uh, we're going to hide behind the mountain there and we're going to ambush you or something like that. He doesn't even talk about that. He says plainly, and this is his purpose, of course, that the Lord Jesus Christ should be the center of the universe. And he says, I have set my king, past tense, on the throne of David. God, you see, and this is what we talked about when we began, this is the sovereignty of God. He's not going to lose strength. He's not going to lose power. He's not going to lose his determination. He's not going to be thwarted. He's not going to be outsmarted. He's not going to be prevented. God's purposes will be fulfilled. And everything we've been reading here in the book of Revelation since we started is going to happen exactly the way God said it will. Okay. And as I said, turn back to Revelation. We'll we'll talk about Megiddo and the Battle of Armageddon when we get to chapter 19. In fact, it's... Significant. If you were to stop at verse 16 here in chapter 16, finish reading that phrase, and they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew uh, Armageddon, and then you picked up later in chapter 19 and uh, verse 17. It's, it's as if it's just a continuous flow. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and you see the Lord Jesus return. Um, Verse 19, And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So, really, there's, there's another parenthesis. We've had many of them. And there's a parenthesis we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week, chapter 17 and 18, on the judgment of Babylon the Great. So, before we get to that, there is one more bowl, the last one. Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, And here's a loud voice again. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, now it says in your translations, it is done or something like that, many words. It's one word in the Greek. It's very interesting. It's very significant. Literally done. It's a loud voice. God is saying, done. The judgment is done. Isn't it be great to be at this time when it's all over and we're with the Lord Jesus Christ? looking forward to his millennial reign 
And then later, the new heavens and earth. Praise God. These things haven't happened yet. They're yet to be fulfilled. And it's going to be a terrible time for the inhabitants of the earth. And it'll be so good when it's over. Now, we'd like to uh, get carried away here because I, I know many of you are thinking, wow, that's, that's interesting because the last thing the Lord Jesus said on the cross is what? And it's one word, finished. But it's not the same word and it's important that it's not. It's significant in that they're both a note of completion and triumph, but there it's a much stronger word. It's talking about finished in the idea that there is a work that's going to stand forever here. There's something that has come as a result of it. That is our salvation. And it's unshakable. It's going to last forever. He completed it. Do you understand? Here, it's reference to an act that has just been done. Okay? But in both cases, it's one word, and it's uh, shouted by God himself. Verse 18, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Here's how great it is. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. The cities of the nations, everywhere. This is not a local earthquake, okay? And great Babylon was remembered before God. We'll talk about that next week. To give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath, then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. There's an idea of the magnitude of this earthquake. And it's not surprising. You see, this is God's last dealings with the earth. This is it. As far as judgment. Because next, the Lord Jesus visibly returns and sets up his reign in Jerusalem. And so as his last act. It's like he gets hold of the earth, you know, and goes like that, like a dog with a slipper. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be here when a worldwide earthquake hits? Wow. Just as a result, he says, oh, the mountains were not found. The mountains are brought down. The mountains that he brought up, probably uh, uh, during the flood, it says the fountains of the deep were broken up there, and there's a lot involved in uh, geologic shifting and so on. Um, the scientists are half right as far as the fact that there are, yes, tectonic plates, which do move. But the problem is they see them moving at one millimeter per year and they extrapolate backwards. And they make the flawed assumption that the mockers did in Second Peter by saying, all things continue as they have from the beginning. And God says right there in that passage, and they totally ignore the fact that the earth was already destroyed by a flood. You say they make the wrong assumption. Yeah, the plates are there, but God's going to move them like this. And it's significant the mountains are going to be leveled. And it says every island fled away. Well, an island is just a mountain in the ocean. So every mountain that's a mountain is going to be gone. And that, again, that's so significant to me. It's like God is going to level every high place. You know? It sounds like the first coming of the Lord uh, when John the Baptist, that was one of the things he was doing. He was making straight the way of the Lord and he was bringing down, you know, it should have been the pride of men's hearts. Here, God's going to physically do that. He's going he's to level the earth, okay? And if the mountains are gone, certainly all the buildings are just flattened. And then on top of that, verse 21, And great hail from heaven fell upon men, every hailstone about the weight of a talent. Well, a talent varies in the Scripture, but just about everybody agrees, this is probably the 100-pound version. So if you can imagine hail, we've had hail that weighs pounds, Hail, you know, hail is formed, right? It's in a, uh, a thundercloud. And you get tremendous updrafts 
in thunderclouds. I work with a group of scientists, they're atmospheric scientists, and to this day, we still do not have a, a computer model as to exactly how this happens. They don't know how tornadoes are formed and how um, the big uh, thunderheads are formed from scratch. But they do know that you get updrafts of hundreds, four or five hundred miles an hour up. And that's how you can get hailstones like this because as the ice crystals begin to you know, stick to each other and they're going to fall because they're so heavy, the updrafts are so great they send them back up to the top again. And so they come down and they gather more ice. And if the updrafts are so great, then you get, as is well known in Texas, Kansas, they get hailstones the size of softballs. They go through the roofs of cars. That's known right today. Okay? Well, it's not surprising that God demonstrates his, his anger and his wrath and what he can do. Here we're talking 100 pounds. That's incredible. Can you imagine? And this is going to be a worldwide. And again, it's not surprising the atmosphere is going to be so in, in such disarray after the other things that have taken place. It may be that God may bring it out of a sunny sky too, by the way. He can do that. But whatever it is, you don't want to be there when a 100-pound hailstone comes down out of the sky. And if you went and hide in your house, it still wouldn't be doing any good. Well, uh, it's significant. I said he talked about men blaspheming God twice. It's actually three times. And this is the third time. It's, like, it's, it's confirmation, really. The, the hearts of men and women are so hard that even after this, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. Now, I don't know where you, where you stand this morning here with the Lord Jesus. Some here know him, some don't. God is telling us beforehand what it's going to be like, what he's going to do. You should take note that uh, the way he's describing the heart of man describes people right now today. They want nothing to do with God. In fact, it's interesting. Um, if indeed the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to reign, you think we'd be making plans for his return, wouldn't you? Do you see it? Huh? You, you see people acknowledging that and getting ready? Hopefully we do, brothers and sisters. But you see, the earth is not wanting him to come back. They're not ready. And when these things begin to happen, the true colors are going to come out. So these things are written and really as a warning. God said it. It's going to happen. And so now is the time to repent. Come to Jesus Christ. Man, now is the time to come to Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship You this morning. We know Your Word is true. We look back, we think of all the prophecies that were spoken hundreds of years before you came the first time. And now we can look back and say, just as he said, he did it. We know there's a lot of prophecy still left, talking about the time when you're going to come again. This time not to die on a cross, but to come in judgment. And we know it's going to happen, just the way you say. Oh Lord, our hearts go out to anyone here who is not ready for that moment that they might trust you today as their Savior and their Lord, that they might bow the knee now before it's too late. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.